This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. Hey everybody, we're the Mentorers. Welcome back to your bi-weekly look at the world of juice and sports. I'm Jamie. I'm here with my co-host Gabe. Gabe, how you doing tonight? I'm I'm doing well. Boker Tov to all of our listeners out there. Presumably yeah, if it's they're the listening. Morning. We we it'd be nice to do some analytics on when people are listening to us. I always think of podcasts as being like a morning a morning Yeah, uh, a commuting video. move. Yeah, exactly. Cuz commuting, but uh I don't know because now that uh, I don't know, people work from home. Maybe maybe they're listening to podcasts, you know, late night in the ba- in the bath or uh, in the mid- <laughs> in midday evening. If you're if you're in the bath while listening to this, have a wonderful wonderful evening. Yeah. Do you think do, do we can we have some sort of Jewish ASMR part of our podcast? <laughs> Danny oh, our, our producer Michael Danny is showing Danny us a breakdown. Our, our producer Michael is showing us a breakdown of when people listen to our podcast, and it appears to be. Primarily between eleven a.m. and eight and eight p.m. Except be, it seems we we usually release there, Thursdays there and Fridays. Yeah, Friday there's mornings we get for, a bump. Yeah, so the morning after we release, so that would suggest that people are downloading it on their way to work or on on their way to uh, on their way to commute. So that's great. Thank you for that so live analytics, Gabe producer said. Michael. Yeah. Um. So we we have a very uh, in, exciting interview coming up later uh, in the episode with Sheldon Plenner. Uh, Sheldon is a uh, lawyer at Castles Brock, and he is currently the acting chairman for the Ottawa Senators, uh, which is essentially essentially means that he's he's in the place of the owner. Uh, we've had a his, lot of we've had executives, we've had athletes from all the big four, we've had journalists. It's our first active team owner. Uh, yeah, that's right. Which is you know you'd think that would be where we started, but <laughs> you know given given the demographics of the group. Uh, but That's true. big ups, big get for Jamie on this podcast. I want to publicly recognize Jamie for the get uh, oh, thank and you. for bringing well, Mr. Planner onto the show. It, it was very gracious of Sheldon to, to spend some time with us. And, uh, you know, he is a family friend. So I, I definitely was taking advantage of the personal connection there. But I'm not uh, saying that you brought it up. No, I, I appreciate <laughs> it. I mean, I'm just saying we're all uh, we're all we're all nepotism babies of one sort or another. So this is this is the time to shine for that. Um, but it was really great of Sheldon to join us and talk about both his career with the Senators and, and you know, his work, his, his uh, relationship with the uh, deceased owner, Eugene Melnick, um, who we talk about is not Jewish, but a lot of people think is. Um, and also his career, you know, as a sports lawyer in, in various ways that he's been involved with sort of a lot of the biggest, you know, uh, goings on in Canadian sports over, over the and- last several decades. Until we did this interview, I had no idea what a sports lawyer did. Um, I assumed they were essentially agents or, you know, I guess negotiating various like concussion settlements. And I guess they still do that, but it's a lot more than just that. And it was really interesting to hear Sheldon talk a lot about it um, and sort of give that perspective of how one becomes a sports lawyer. He mentions it's a very popular sort of law school dream. Um but it's a little more complicated to get there than you think, and we're really happy to to chat through it with him. Yeah, I, I think this was um, 
this was something I sort of wanted to look in a little into a little bit uh, in our podcast. Was sort of doing a little bit of a, I don't know if like a, a um, career fair is the right term for it. <laughs> that just sort of like wanted to get people with different perspectives on like how to actually get there in, in terms of like careers that you know if we had le- young listeners who are thinking about a career in sports, how do you actually get there? It, is part yeah. of the interesting story, and and, and you know. Uh, I don't want to spoil the interview, but you know, Sheldon talks about how really, really the trick for him was becoming a really good business lawyer and, and, you know, obviously a very respected lawyer as well. And, and that got him clients in sports as well. So that was interesting to hear. I mean, just to answer your question a little bit, I mean, um, I, I, as some of our listeners know, I am a lawyer. Uh, I did take a sports Whoa. law class. Yeah. I did take a sports law class at Western university uh, where I went to law school and they have a sports uh, legal clinic as well. Uh, that's, I think either, sort of overseen by Richard McLaren, who is uh, a professor at the university. And he is uh, involved with the court for court for arbitration of sport, which is sort of the uh, appeal body for a lot of first level um, quasi judicial sports making decisions. Uh, Mm -hmm. So he's been involved. He had been involved in uh, like um, what you call it? The, uh, the uh, cycling scandals, the doping scandals, like he was on the panels that that dealt with that. I can't remember if there's an arm Right. If, if someone wants to take legal recourse from their sample being mishandled, there's got to be some sort of governing body that that or or legal body that can organize something with that. And Richard McLaren, surprisingly, I mean, not maybe not surprisingly, doesn't sound like a particularly Jewish name. No, um, uh, but, no, but you know, very. It was very interesting to see you know how he, his own progression as a sports lawyer, and that's I think a, a field where it. It's probably something Jewish kids are steered towards, you know. Hey, yes. I, I'm really involved in sports. I would love to do something in sports. Well, why don't you get a law degree? You could be, you could be, uh, you know, a sports agent or something like that. And I, it would be great to get a sports agent on to talk about uh, their career path as well. I have a that's... distant cousin who's a sports oh, agent. Yeah? I should. His name's Ian Pulver. I should. I should reach out. I think we're connected maybe. on LinkedIn and nowhere else. <laughs> okay, this will be the portion of our. Uh, maybe we'll do a few podcasts in a row of just. Uh, Asking friends and relatives to pitch it and uh, join us. <laughs> I um, promise anyways. you guys, we waited two and a half years before we asked any friend or relative. <laughs> now we're now, fucking... now that's all we're doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. We're scraping uh, uh, that part of the kishka pot. But I really hope it's interesting, and I hope uh, people will stick around for that, and you know, pass this podcast along to your aspiring nephews and nieces and things like that who who want a job in sports and. Uh, you know, want want to know more about what that means, and and hopefully we'll have some more interviews in the future uh, with, with guests who can shine some light on that. Um, um, before we get to the interview with Sheldon, just to do our our typical uh, Jews and sports news. Not not a ton going on uh, in the world of sports. I mean, it's football season, it's basketball season. We talked last time about uh, Denny of Dia having a little run. Uh, I can say personally that uh, he was picked up in my fantasy basketball league. Uh, I don't know if that means much, but. Uh, you know, that's 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 pre- usually a sign that someone is is coming together in a, in a pretty significant way. Um, you know, this this could be the jump that he's making and, and being a in, into being a sort of reliable starter. It's starting to really happen for him. He had he came he didn't I don't think he got the triple double, but he came really, really close to getting yeah, a triple double last close. week um, and, you know, starting to get the team. There's a lot of playing time. It's up for grabs. So if he can uh, uh, sort of grab the reins a little bit and, and come into his own in his next year in the league. It's a, a very big move for Denny. And and I guess I wonder what his overall claim rate in fantasy sports leagues is. Cause I imagine it's, it's probably a pretty, about as true of a market like understanding of the quality of a player more than uh, any other one. 
So that's definitely sort of a, a, a macroeconomic view of it. Um, in, interestingly, uh, I, I also, you know, we noticed we missed on our last World Cup preview episode, and the World Cup's been going on. Um, United States goaltender Matt Turner, um, whose father is Jewish, they just reached the second round. So congratulations to Matt. There are two. Yeah, Jewish we should guys say we're, we're recording right after the uh, Iran uh, U.S. game, and I'm going to guess most Jewish soccer fans, uh, regardless of where they're from, were probably cheering for the U.S. in that one. Uh, I, if they I, had, I mean, they had guess. the Jewish players definitely. Yeah, they had the Jewish players too. Um, but yeah, good, but you know, uh, muzzle tov to, to DeAndre Yedlin and, and Matt Turner for making it to the second round or the knockout stage. Is so, that the official term is? I, th- I think it's the, the round of 16, the knockout stage. So I think you presume, I know the players of Iran engaged in various protests against the Iranian government or the regime. Um, do you think the Ayatollah watches Iranian soccer games? Like national team good question. games? I have, I have no idea. I mean, it, uh, on the one hand, like they seem sort of important, you know, there were reports the other day of, of their family members being threatened uh, mm-hmm. if the Iranian players if they continue to protest. Further. Yeah, um, and I mean, you know, we'll never divorce sp- sports from politics, good or bad. I mean, those are those things are always going to be connected, especially with these sort of national teams and, and a stage as big as the World Cup. Um, so I have no idea if he uh, if he watches or is a sports fan. Uh, you know, probably somebody gave him a briefing on at, at the very least on whether or not there was any sort of then uh, protest or anything like that that was going to going going to you know affect things back home. So if the Ayatollahs, I just wonder because if the Ayatollah is watching the game and we've sort of gotten the world Jewry cheering against the Ayatollah, who do you think the highest ranking Jew in America was watching the Team USA part of the game or in <laughs> England? I mean the, U- the British, a lot of British Jewish fans, you know Tottenham Hotspur, the England captain plays their owner is Dan Levy. Very famous right. Jewish guy. So like, but, so like, was Anthony Blinken the Secretary of State? Was he watching the game? I mean, yeah, probably. Pro- I mean, probably just probably not just because like I'm sure that being a secretary, he of, had other uh, things to state, do. Like your your day is probably booked like you know seven a.m. to ten p.m. kind of thing. But uh, I'm sure he was aware of it. All right, but I, I also he was aware of it. I meant more in like the supreme leader category. Like, do you think like like Yoel Teitelbaum turned on the game for oh, any okay. minute? I see. Uh, maybe I, I, I doubt it. Probably not that much interest in the secular world. Uh, but if there is, maybe <laughs> but, he has some. But in the football US is the is the, the global game of the of, of every culture. It's all football. Yeah. But I think Anthony Blinken is probably. You're right. That's probably the best, the highest ranking Jewish person. Um, and sort of a not, matter of state. You know, when the U.S. faces off against Iran in a in a you know World Cup setting. I think it's some, a matter of state. Like I I wonder if there's some sort of like. You know, I some sort of uh, uh, email diplomacy going on. This actually reminds me of a story uh, that the when I was in high school, my Hebrew school, my confirmation class went Mm. to visit the United Nations in New York. And the ambassador to the U.N. at the time for Israel was like some 25 year old guy or he was not the ambassador. He was the staffer that gave us the tour. He was an American guy who had moved to Israel and came back to be the like is on the Israeli delegation to the UN. So we went and we visited and he told us the story of a time where Iran sent their happy new year email to all of the other teams in world football and mm-hmm. accidentally forgot to remove Israel from the listserv. <laughs> so about 10 minutes later, the Israeli Soccer Federation gets an email from the Iranian Soccer Federation saying, sorry, we sent that welcoming happy email. It wasn't actually meant for you. <laughs> that's uh, really so that's funny. my 
closest experience with the Iranian Soccer Federation. I, um, I like the idea that like Iran could uh, you know accidentally acknowledge Israel's right to exist by virtue of having sent it a uh, listserv response. You know, accidentally replying all instead yeah. of replying all minus one. That I mean, that's exactly what it was, uh, and yeah. and they didn't want to have to do that. It's it's like Trump accidentally calling Taiwan just because it was on the list of countries that was placed in front of him, right? Like to introduce himself, like they just yeah, this is all of the countries. Oh wait, that one's not good. Well, sports and uh, you know international relations they go hand in hand, especially when we have these sort of global meetups uh, like the World Cup. You know, whenever the, whenever there's two teams playing, I like to think about the. Uh, I, I made a joke on Twitter the other day about. It thinking about the the team's histories when they're playing each other uh, when it was Germany versus Japan. Uh, it, it, but sometimes it's odd. And it's like, I don't know what the relationship is between, uh, you know, Ecuador and, and the Netherlands, for example, there must be some, there must've been some at some point. I'm sure there's some people in Ecuador who are from the Netherlands and or vice versa. And yeah. I, it, I'm interested in hearing all those stories because like, it's, uh, it, it's it's just an interesting thing to think about the different people from around the world in, in their own di- little diasporas, uh, you know, with uh, competing loyalties or, or competing totally. interests. I mean, in different though things. it's it, interesting to think about like forms of government. Like that group is Germany, Japan, Spain, and Costa Rica. So like uh-huh. seventy years ago, three fascist countries in Costa yeah. Rica. Um, That's right. And you know the same goes for the group that has Poland, Argentina. You know, like they 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 have their fascist histories, and then oh, uh, and Saudi Arabia that was the other one in that same group. So not a lot of like democracy historically going on I, there. I have definitely heard from people who have said to me that the, they cheer for the teams that they think are the least anti-Semitic from the yeah. countries oh. that are the least anti-Semitic. That's like and a so good, that, like very good Olympic rule. It's a very good World Cup rule. Yeah. So like I'm it like, didn't there- work out the other day, but like you know, we were cheering for Canada obviously because we're from here, but like. You know, you can also just cheer against Croatia. Yeah, oh, uh, de- oh. because uh, yeah, the, uh, you the know, I don't want to make this whole thing about whether yeah. or not Czech- Croatia is full of anti-Semites. Uh, at least historically, no disrespect to any Croatians or Croatian Canadians <laughs> that I, that we might know. Uh, but I'm just saying, if you have to think about which of these countries, like traditionally, is full of anti-Semites, it's not Canada. Not I, that we don't have our own sordid past here, but I'm just saying, like, oh yeah, you, know, I you, feel- can, you can make those decisions if you want. When Croatia plays Morocco, I don't know exactly who you're going to root for or who one is supposed to root for. <laughs> what do you want? You see like Croatia versus Germany and you think like, which Nazi is the least bad at this moment? Um, but I mean, Argentina's got plenty of Jews. I think in the sure. Argentina versus Saudi, obviously it was fun to see Saudi win. But like if you're rooting for the plurality of Jews, I think Argentina is going to take it. Probably, you know, ver- probably in that in that whole Argentinian group. Um, yeah. But now but, I think I think the only the only real Jewish rooting interest going on is is the is the the states that as they actually the have two Jewish yeah. players because they actually um, have two Jewish players and uh, lots of Jews live in America so <laughs> I think so uh, England too I mean again not a lot of yeah, Jewish sure. players but pretty serious Jewish soccer culture um, anti Semitic soccer culture as well plenty of that. Um, but you know, pretty serious. Or the Dutch, I, or, or the Dutch, I guess. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some of those guys play for Ajax or whatever. And, that's uh, that's true. I think their manager, the the Dutch manager, we talked about it last week, was sort of a lifelong Ajax guy. Okay. Um, cool. And there hasn't been a lot of historical. There's been a lot of historical Dutch Jewish players, just not a lot with a lot of World Cup experience. Um, but okay. you're right. I think I think that sort of you focus on on not as Nazi occupied Europe. And right. North America, and th- that's where you get your Jewish 
your Jewish rooting interest. Uh, yeah. But, you know, for the next, I think also, you know, as as Middle Eastern diaspora people, we could also really get behind some of the the less expected African countries like, you know, Senegal, a, a French colony and Ghana as well from countries that like places that, you know, are, are sort of a, a diaspora and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Dispersed people all throughout sure. Africa for, you know, pan-African colonialism. Definitely a lot sure. of, of historical Jewish analogy in there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, totally I, something I, worth, worth rooting for. Uh, one other thing I wanted to, I wanted to mention is, you know, there's so much focus, I think, here at home about Canada's potential uh, chances at the World Cup that I think an underreported story, something I haven't really seen many people talking about, is Canada winning the Davis Cup for the first time. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, Spe- that's beating, true. Beating Australia uh, the other day. And part of that victory was uh, Israeli-born, uh, son, son of a Jewish mother. Possibly Jewish. Uh, possibly Jewish. I don't know how he identifies Denis Shapovalov. Uh, who you know t- took uh, took down one uh, the nasty Kokonakis of Australia uh, to help help secure the Davis Cup victory. Pretty pretty big deal. I mean, very, in terms of world tennis, right? Very big deal. Canada has never won the Davis Cup before. I think we've made the final a couple of times, but it's it's yeah. a, a it's surprisingly less big of a deal than I think we would expect it to be. Uh, maybe yeah, in I a don't non- know why it's not here. I, maybe it is the World Cup thing. I, I feel like it's the kind of thing that if they if they had like a big tournament with everyone there at the same time, it would be a big thing. But I, I feel like the Davis cup is often like there. It's like, they're always playing games for it or rounds for it here and there. Um, like there's not like just one consolidated time. If they just had like a world cup of tennis, but on the other hand, it's, it's just, it's just not a team sport. Like I feel like when they make it and, and not to diminish the win at all, or the importance of the Davis cup, but I just mean from a spectator perspective, like it, it doesn't really feel like a team sport. You're watching one-on-one battles, which is part of what I think makes tennis so so amazing and like so watchable when when it's uh, when it's at its peak. But uh, anyways, you know, congratulations to Team Canada. Uh, nice to see a Canadian team succeed on the world stage in a sport that we're not traditionally like you know known to be the best at. Uh, no shade at the Canadians men's team. We we will be there rooting for you in 2026. It's true, and and it's you know uh, uh, you know Shapovalov isn't even the number one player in Canada anymore. Um, right? Yeah, Felix Ojeda-Aliassime to, to Felix, who you know he won something like eighteen matches in three tournaments in a row this summer, Crazy. and it's sort of flew under the radar. We would have been all over it if he was Jewish, but he's not. So apologies to our listeners, our tennis fan listeners. Okay, let's uh, let's go to our interview with Sheldon Planner. To lead into this interview, I want to mention it is taken. It took uh, until 1955 for the country of Canada to have a Jewish senator. It took until 1968 for them to have a second Jewish senator. It took the Menschwarmers until roughly episode 70 to have our first Jewish senator. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Sheldon Planner. Did you know April 2023 is Israel's 75th anniversary? In honor of this huge milestone, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto is planning an epic trip to Israel, and all of Canada is invited. Israel's anniversary, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, is a -a one-of-a-kind experience. Streets are filled with parties, fireworks, music, and dancing. On UJA's Israel 75, you'll get to join the celebration. 75 is not a regular anniversary, and Israel 75 is not your typical trip. You'll get a truly unique experience of the country, no matter how many times you've been before. 
With 10 specialized tracks, you can create an itinerary that is totally personalized, whether you're a foodie, an adrenaline seeker, a TV buff, or politically minded. The best part? You can mix and match tracks on different days. Embark on a thrilling adventure one day and a culinary experience the next. Let your own interests be your guide and experience everything Israel has to offer. To learn more about the trip, visit UJAIsrael75.com. That's UJAIsrael75.com. Hi, I'm Meredith Shiner, and I'm the host of a new podcast from Tablet Studios called The Franchise. Jews, sports, and America. In this limited series, I'll be talking to journalists, athletes, professional sports nerds, and more about the intersections of contemporary Jewish American life and sports culture. This show tackles the big questions like, do we still need Sandy Koufax as our icon? And are the Mets the most Jewish team in sports? And are sports just? But really, it's a show that uses sports as the prism to explore the most pressing issues for American Jews today, from identity to justice to assimilation or lack thereof. The show is serious and fun and serious fun, and I hope you'll listen to the franchise wherever you get your podcasts. We're joined tonight by Sheldon Plenner. Uh, thanks for joining us, Sheldon. Can you give our audience a little bit of an introduction? Sure. Um, uh, the name is Sheldon Plenner, as you mentioned. I uh, joined a law firm called Castles, Brock & Blackwell back in 1978. I've been there close to 44 years. Um, wow. My general practice um, is mergers and acquisitions. But uh, during the course of my career, I was lucky enough to uh, become involved in sports. And so I have a sort of a subspecialty in sports law. Um, not something I uh, planned on, but it, it happened. And I'm glad it did. Be, it, it, I'm glad it happened because it, it's turned out to be a very interesting part of my practice. So Sheldon, one of, one of the things we want to talk to you about is, is your role with the Ottawa Senators. But I want to go a little earlier chronologically uh, and ask you about your time with the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team, because I understand <laughs> you were a five-time All-Star. Uh, in the yeah. Intercounty Baseball League. That's true. Um, first of all, I want to know, Jamie, whether you've ever interviewed anybody that's actually been at your bris. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is the first one, and and this okay. is quite the outing, I should say. Uh, Sheldon Sheldon's a longtime family friend, and uh, it is Jamie's live. get. You're Jamie's get as a guest. <laughs> There's no doubt about that anymore. Uh, we used to live. You guys used to live I, not right behind us, but uh, yeah, kitty corner. Anyway, right? Very close, very close. And our your daughter and my sister are best friends. That's exactly. there's there's a lot yeah. of layers to the relationship. So um, I I had a I had a huge interest in um, in baseball. Um, and uh, not in hockey, and which is surprising, I guess. And uh, um, I played uh, all levels of baseball uh, up to the Intercounty Leafs. I think I played for them from about 1973 for five years. I was a five-time All-Star, fortunately. I worked hard for that. Um, I practiced a lot and uh, and ha aspired to become a professional baseball player. And I was actually scouted uh, by the Detroit Tigers, Cincinnati Reds. Um, but back in those days, you know, talk about 1973, there wasn't a big market for Jewish center fielders. And, uh, you know, I say I say this because if I if I do have a regret in life, because um, I came from a very modest family, um, I think if my father would have sent me to UCLA, um, or could afford to do that, I probably at least could have made sort of a minor league, maybe maybe even higher uh, level of baseball. 
Um, and so when that didn't come about, I figured, okay, I need to make a living somehow. So I turned the law. So, you know, obviously you've got a passion for baseball, a passion for sports. You may have been one of the only Jewish players in the intercounty baseball league at the time. Um, 100%, 100%. So, you know, this is going to probably be a theme in my line of questioning here, but you went to a much more Jewish pra- way of life law. And I ask sort of what does a sports lawyer do? Like what is under the purview of a sports lawyer? Okay, well, I get asked that question quite a bit because, you know, I've, I've gone to law schools. First of all, every, virtually, not every, but so many young lawyers aspire to become involved in sports law. And um, really, sports law is nothing more than commercial law, business law. And so, you know, in, in my role as outside counsel for the team, I get it, I get involved in Everything from employment issues to funding of the of the hockey club to the to deciding whether the people who clean the ice between uh, uh, intermissions wears a helmet or not um, uh, to players uh, who have issues uh, off ice. Um, uh, the only thing I don't do um, is deal directly with the contracts for the players because that is prescribed by, there's a, a form of contract that has been negotiated with the union. And basically the general manager fills in the blanks, how many years salary, and there's some mo- minor opportunity for bonuses. So I, so when people think of sports lawyer, I'm not a sports agent, um, um, but, uh, but I, I have done work. I do do contracts for, uh, coaches and general managers. And, uh, you know, that's, sort of how I got involved. Well, I, I originally got involved. It was, I, was, I guess, fortunate because um, John Bito back in, you know, 1993 was in the bidding process to buy uh, an expansion fr- franchise from the NBA. So the NBA had decided not between cities, but who in Toronto would be granted a franchise. And back in those days, you know, Larry Tannenbaum had made an application. Michael Cole, who's well-known in the concert business, had made an application. And so did John Bito. And uh, and John showed up in our office one day to meet with my partner at the time, still my partner, David Peterson, the former premier, and said, look, I want I want to apply for this franchise. And, and John had had a relationship uh, uh, earlier with people like Isaiah Thomas. They went to the same college together. And uh, David Peterson called me into his office and said, uh, meet John Bitov. Uh, he wants to get uh, an expansion franchise for the Raptors. And the next four or five years of my life was making the application, uh, attending at the NBA offices, uh, negotiating the expansion agreement. And so what's an expansion agreement? Expansion agreement basically is you know, here's how much I'm going to pay for the franchise. Um, here are some of the perks I'm going to get or not get. For example, we weren't allowed the first overall draft choice because uh, um, it would, it really went down to like, where are we, what facility are we going to have? What's our undertaking with regard to where we're going to uh, have our um, uh, a stadium or arena? Um, in fact, surprisingly enough, in our application, we had chosen the parking lot behind the Eaton Center. In fact, that was the original intention as opposed to where it is now. And so that was sort of my first connection with sports. And, you know, I did the footprint license and the expansion agreement. And uh, in fact, the Vancouver at the time just piggybacked on the expansion agreement that I had negotiated. Oh, interesting. <laughs> worked, out, worked out better for the Raptors. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of fortunate because I remember doing due diligence at the NBA offices and I was in a boardroom. 
Um, and uh, people like uh, David Stern was the commissioner then, and, and Russ Gramick was the deputy commissioner. And I, they put me in a boardroom, and around the boardroom, they had the pictures of every NBA championship team from 1946 onwards. And I'm looking at the wall, and I'm, I'm sitting across from an NBA lawyer, and I'm saying, you know, at my law firm, um, you know, which was not what you would call a Jewish law firm. I was like the first Jew there. And, <laughs> And not the last, though. I looked on the wall and I saw 1946, 1947, the names were Fleischmann. And, <laughs> and then it, it gravitated to how it looks now. And I said to the lawyer, I said, you know, my, my partners in my firm would never believe that these Jewish basketball players dominated the NBA for about the first two or three years. And so anyways, I took a break for lunch. And I came back and he, I'd asked for a whole bunch of due diligence materials like, you know, lawsuits and that type of thing. And on top of it was the, the picture of the from the first two or three frames of these Jewish athletes that, that won the NBA championship. So, oh, that's great. So um, so that was sort of my first real exposure. And, and then uh, and then when Pat Quinn, Pat Quinn was was negotiating with the Leafs. I think he was uh, previously with Vancouver. And uh, we had an affiliate in Vancouver, and they asked, does anybody have any sports expertise? And they referred Pat to me. And uh, and at that time, it was a big secret that Pat was going to come join the Leafs. And uh, and I got into a long, drawn-out negotiation with uh, Ken Dryden at the time on Pat's contract. And uh, I think I think long and dried out describes uh, Ken Dryden pretty well. <laughs> well, he once said to me, I was once at a, a St. Michael's Majors game, and he was there with his brother. His brother was was a goalie as well. And he didn't have a great great memory of me in the negotiation with Pat. They didn't get along that well. Mm-hmm. And we, we sort of hardballed somewhat because we knew that they wanted to sign Pat badly. And I said to, I asked Ken Dryden, I said, uh, and he knew I was connected with the Ottawa Senators at the time. I said, Ken, um, like, which team do you have the most memories for? Which were your favorite team? They said, well, of course, Montreal. I played there. I won a Vezina Trophy. I won a championship. Uh, and then, obviously, the Toronto Maple Leafs, because I was there. I was, you know, I think he was the president, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, any other teams? And he says, any any team that plays the Ottawa Senators. You think it would be good? That, you so think Ken that, Dryden would have a, a leg up negotiating in, yeah. compared to other uh, sports executives with his, uh, you know, both legal and playing background? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, well, anyways, it was when, when Pat finally signed, we went out for dinner with our wives. It was, you know, Pat Quinn and his wife and, and Ken Dryden and his wife and Noni, my wife, Noni, and I. And uh, they didn't talk about the great things they did in their careers, you know, like like Pat body checking Bobby Orr, that famous body check, or mm-hmm. you know, Ken Dryden. Went, they talked about the crazy things that happened in hockey, and it was kind of, it was it was refreshing. To, and like, and I I probably am speaking for a lot of our audience here. Do you remember where you had dinner? Yeah, it was Harbor Sixty. Very nice. That's a a good celebration. Yeah, no, it, it it was good. It was it was great. So that all leads to I don't want to talk too much, but no, this is but, this is uh, supposed to be you talking as much as it, as much as possible. It, it all leads to Eugene Melnick uh, calling me one day, and, and it's interesting. Eugene Melnick is not Jewish. He's not Jewish. That you took yeah. the words right out of my mouth. He's, he's, a, it's he's a surprising surprising non-Jew. But he used to get calls from rabbis all the time <laughs> for contributions, and I would have rabbis that show up at my boardroom. Sorry, in our in our reception area, mm-hmm. uh, because Eugene had referred them to me to deal with any <laughs> donation requests. So, anyway, so so Eugene went to St. Mike's, mm-hmm. and he had, that was his alma mater, and he had a, a fondness for him. And 
the, the Bethelian fathers were partners in the St. Michael's majors, along with a group of uh, old boys from, um, from the school. And they were having issues and financing issues. So, so they called Eugene and said, Eugene, um, we want you to buy the hockey team. And, uh, you know, it's a OHL hockey team with, you know, a great history. A lot of former Hall of Famers came from, uh, uh, from St. Mike's. And so he called me up and said, do you do any sports law? Do you know? I said, of course I do sports law. You know, it was probably 10 or 15% of my practice, but Mm -hmm. it was, you know, I I don't know that you can make a full-time practice of just being a sports lawyer. That's, that's Mm -hmm. what I the law grads, I say to them, become the best business lawyer you can be, learn everything you can about business law, and then apply that to sports. So I said, you know, I do have sports law experience. I told them about the Raptors. I told them about my Pat Quinn relationship. Uh, you know, I acted for uh, uh, Sherwood Schwartz when he bought the Argos. Um, um, and That's so, one hell of a name. Yeah, I know. He's from New York. Sherwood <laughs> Schwartz. I always remember. I think they actually paid him to take the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you haven't worked out the math fully, but so so I acted for Eugene on uh, on the uh, on the purchase of uh, the hockey club, uh, and you know if you go to the school, you'll see that there's a, a Eugene Melnick Field in the back behind the school. And mm-hmm. uh, interesting story is that um, I I negotiated a donation agreement with St. Mike's. Um, you know, as to the you know the name on the field, whether it's in perpetuity and all that kind of stuff. There's, and, you know, it's a good clue that he's not Jewish, given how much the Melnick family name is on various Catholic institutions throughout Ontario. Well, the the funny story is, is that because he made this contribution, this donation, they had a big uh, assembly for him, and they had like all the students out there in the auditorium, and they had all the old boys. They called old boys because they attended the school, and they went on, became very successful, and they don't made a lot of money to the school. Sure. So we, I was in, you know, I attended with Eugene to this assembly, and uh, we're all getting lined up uh, to go on the podium, and uh, the the head Brazilian father at the time, I can't remember his name calls us all up, all the old boys, and they're all standing behind them, one by one, you know, afterwards, uh, behind them. And uh, Eugene says, come on up with me. Come on up with me. I said, no, 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 I'm not involved. Like, you know. Uh-huh. And like Eugene had a real sense of humor. So anyways, he drags me up and, you know, there's like five old boys and then Eugene and then me and then the head Brazilian father. And they go one by one. You know, the, the, he know, the Brazilian father, he knows each of them and he talks about that. He's got a successful car dealership. You know, he went on to set up an insurance company. And then they, and Eugene is like laughing on the stage because he knows that, that he doesn't have a clue who I am. And, and the continuity breaks up when he comes to me and he looks around to me and he starts stuttering. And somebody says, Sheldon Plenner, he's a lawyer. So I'm sure, like I was the only Jewish guy, obviously on the podium, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so, at least they, at least they didn't try to give you communion while you're up there. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, through Eugene, you know, I guess through your connection with him, you became involved with the senators, and uh, I, your position with them, I ultimately became governor and chairman. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Well, um, I got involved in the acquisition of the senators in 2003. Um, the Ottawa senators were in call it CCAA. Um, and uh, as was Buffalo at the time. And so we looked at, you know, the possibilities of either one of them. Mm-hmm. And we decided that Ottawa is the place where he wanted to be. Uh, people tried to talk in, into um, trying to buy Ottawa out of, its, out of receivership and then move it. 
like the North York or something like that, but, but that wasn't in the cards and that's not something we pursued mm-hmm. uh, with the NHL. Uh, we wanted to be good partners. And so we ended up, or Eugene ended up buying it uh, personally. He bought the arena and he bought the hockey club. We had a really good team in that year as well. I think we went like that. That was the year when we had people like uh, Marian Hosa and Chara and uh, Alfredson and yeah, Brian Alfredson last, last yeah. years there. We were we were almost in the. It was almost possible that we bought the team near the end of the season and could have won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> How often does that happen? No, yeah. So so Eugene was the governor. I was the alternate governor. And I've attended Board of Governor meetings since 2003, so it's coming up to 20 years. Um, I was had been a director, uh, his legal counsel throughout, and unfortunately passed away back in March. And, you know, I had, uh, to a certain extent, been groomed to provide some succession for him if anything happened to him. He didn't obviously expect to die, but and he died young, and unfortunately, you know, he was a good friend. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I guess I naturally, somebody had to assume the role of chairman and governor. Um, and since I am also an executor, I was sort of the, the logical choice. And so, um, you know, I guess in a lot of ways, the management reports to the board of directors, uh, in some cases they re- would report to me mm-hmm. uh, on certain items. And so, you know, my day to day can consist of, you know, settling the budget team budgets along with the board of directors, uh, getting calls from the general manager with regard to, uh, free agents, for example, um, uh, right. with regard to trades, um, with regard to, uh, any number of things, uh, involving a hockey club. Um, so I'm not an owner in that I don't have equity, sure. but I, I have this responsibility along with the board of directors, uh, and the executors for the operation of the hockey club and obviously in consultation with his two daughters. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about um, what the board of governors meetings are like? I mean, I assume what actually is said in the meetings themselves is, is confidential between the owners, yeah. but what, what's it like sitting down with, you know, another 28, 29, uh, yeah. you know, owners, their representatives and sort of, it, it's such an interesting idea of just like, you know, those are the people who make up the the league, really. The owners are the, yeah. the ones yeah. deciding the rules and, and, you know, what strategy or tenor the league's going to take, things like that. Right, right. So, you, you know, you've got this huge boardroom. Um, you've got like 32 clubs. Mm-hmm. And let's say that each club has got a governor and an alternate governor that are sitting at the table. Um, and behind us are chairs for pe- people like, you know, a, a general manager may be there or a CFO or a business person. And and, and the meetings uh, are conducted by the by Gary um, as, as uh, the commissioner. And uh, he has, you know, a lot of his management team at the meetings. And it's very interesting. You know, th- th- I can't say enough about how competent People like Gary Bettman are and Bill Daly, they're unbelievable. Um, I can't even call my own son and get an immediate reaction. <laughs> but seriously. But if I call Gary or Bill or send them an email, they are right on top of it. Wow. And I, like I've never seen... It's a good skill to have. I ne- I've never seen the, such competency. I mean, you know, I specialize in M&A and business law, and they are so up to speed on competition law, on uh, uh, insurance matters, on... COVID and how to deal with COVID and it's it and it's a small tight knit group that uh, oversees all this. But anyways, so the meeting consists of a, a number of presentations on different things. It could deal with changes of ownership of franchise that need to be approved by the board of governors. It could deal with COVID uh, and COVID policy, you know, which are now mostly you know in the past. Um, it could deal with. Um, um, 
how to deal with infractions. You know, what what infractions could be subject to appeal, uh, to review? Uh, it could deal with new business relationships, like broadcast relationship. It could deal with hockey equipment. Uh, it could deal with, um, uh, you know, uh, anything you can imagine in hockey of a big picture material matter would be brought to those meetings. But but the, the NHL also has, uh, in addition to the commissioner and his management group, has an executive committee. And just like a law firm, you can't have 250 lawyers making decisions. Um, you basically have... I, especially of- if, if that room leans a little more Jewish than the rest. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like there's the old joke about two Jews and three opinions. I can't imagine what a room of 60-odd sports executives... Yeah. You know, I, I, they probably have 75 or so opinions at any given time. I think I think the politics of it is we have like fantastic trust in, in Gary hmm. and uh, uh, he uh, and he's a huge supporter of these of our Canadian franchise hockey teams. I think he gets a bad rap when it hmm. comes to um, to um, whether he supports teams in Canada. He, he's a huge supporter. Um, and uh, um, anyways, I can't say enough about how impressed I am as to how they operate the league. And, you know, I think they, they've done a fantastic job. Uh, you know, negotiating, you know, things like union contracts and, and that type of thing. That's really interesting. It's interesting to, to hear about the sort of, I don't say less glamorous necessarily, but the sort of, uh, you know, the things that have to happen behind the behind the scenes, you know, when you're talking about, you know, provisions for equipment or COVID policies, things like this, I, it's, uh, you know, there are, there are some wheels that need to be turned behind in, in the back rooms that, that sort right. of do make everything happen. I think as fans, we, you know, if, if everything works smoothly, we don't see any of it. We don't notice any, any of it, you know, uh, right. If a, if, a, if a team uh, runs out of pucks or something like that, then we all notice. But uh, if I, everything runs smoothly, I, I feel like, well, I think it's fair to say you're among the people who, who keep things running smoothly uh, and making well, sure those, those wheels probably, turn. I, I, don't, I don't give myself that much credit, but I did have, <laughs> I, I did have, I did have an interesting uh, uh, thing happen, which was that uh, uh, a few years ago uh, was the 100th anniversary of the first meeting of the Board of Governors in Montreal to establish the league. And I happened to be in the room 100 years later when they took a picture similar to the picture they took 100 years before. And wow. so that's very cool. Notoriety point of view, I, I, I'm in that picture 100 years later. So that's, that's kind of cool. That's pretty cool. And now, uh, you know, 50 years from now, when someone's looking at those pictures, when they're starting a new sports franchise, they'll be they'll say, look, there's there's Sheldon. Yeah, probably like, <laughs> a, little, probably like a little dot because uh, be, uh, because, uh, you know, 100 years ago in Montreal, now it's maybe <laughs> it was like six people. There was like six people now in that boardroom. There must have been. 110 people, 120 people. Who knows? I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of picturing something that's like halfway between like the United Nations and like the the Commission scenes from The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's very that. professionally run. It's well organized. It's well attended, and you know, I, I think it's a very fluid kind of meeting and very interesting uh, right. presentations. It it feels like people don't get into sports ownership as like a casual thing. Like it's something you do, you know, because it's your passion. Well, that um, was Eugene's passion. I mean, he mm-hmm. uh, he dreamed about winning a Stanley Cup, and uh, and uh, you know, I'm so sad for him that uh, you know we, we might be a year or two away from it uh, with our young crop of players. Uh, but uh, the there is, I mean, you're talking about very successful people, very successful risk takers. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's how that's how you make a lot of money is you take risks. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know and you are competitive and you know and and they want to win and uh, 
and they have general managers who want to win. Like imagine general managers, if they don't win, they're fired. You know, yeah. the, the longevity of general managers and coaches is not, is not great. Right. And so there's a lot of pressure on them um, to win. And, uh, and so, um, you know, they're there to win, uh, but they're also very gentlemanly, uh, very cordial. Uh, I find, you know, if you, your team plays, uh, for example, Pagula owns the Sabres and any, when Ottawa plays there, he makes a box available. Uh, he provides food and drink. Uh, uh, you know, when it comes to, if somebody wants to build a new arena and you want to go to Edmonton and see what their arena looks like, they'll open it up, give you a tour. Uh, so they're competitive on the ice, but when it comes to business, they tend to share things. I mean, growing the game is always and cooperation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's all obviously very much like you think about the league is still obviously it's extraordinarily popular, but there's always room to grow. Exactly, and, and we've grown uh, grown uh, substantially, uh, you know. And so you know, it's it's going to be franchise values have increased substantially. Sure, um, and and. Uh, you know, people, it, it just provides so much enjoyment mm-hmm. to follow your hockey club. You know, it, it gives you for, I don't know, six or seven months of the year. You can follow them, on, watch them on TV, attend in person, um, you know, email or message your general manager when you see something on the ice that bothers you. You know, you can <laughs> back. It's, uh, it's good to know that Gary Bettman uh, is really quick replying to his emails. I'm sure none of our listeners will ever try and do anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Sheldon, I, I think that's that's probably a good a good place to wrap it up. Before we go, I just wanted to ask you. You talked about being a baseball fan when you were a kid. It's something we often ask our guests. Was there was there any particular Jewish athlete that you looked up to when you were a kid? Uh, I, I given your vintage, I, you're you're a little young for for Koufax, but uh, you would have uh, you would have seen his later years, I guess. I I do remember Koufax. Yeah. Uh, very well, and so he, you know. First of all, I was a big Mickey Mantle fan, not Jewish. Oh, okay. not, no, Jewish. Not, not, not often mistaken for a Jew either. No, the Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg uh, were my two were two idols as well. Greenberg was before right. my time, and it's interesting. I can tell you one last story, which is during the course of uh, uh, conducting uh, senators' business, I met a banker in New York whose name was Stephen Greenberg. And I said, could there be a connection here? So I looked him up and Googled him. And he, he is the son of Hank. Wow. wow. And, and, and I met with him in New York. And, you know, we didn't talk, you know, because I read, I've read the Hank Greenberg story about five times. Mm-hmm. I just find it fascinating. And we talked about uh, his 58 home runs and how basically nobody wanted to pitch to him because they were fearful that he might break Ruth's record. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I mentioned to his son, I said, you know, that 58 home runs, you know, that was. And so he told me, he said that uh, after that 58 home run year, they tried to reduce his salary. Wow. I said, what? He had 58 home runs. Why would they do that? Because the year before he had something like 180 RBIs. And so because his RBI total wasn't as high as the year before, they tried to negotiate to lower his salary. So I always, wow. I always found that interesting and funny. So one of, one of facts in Greenberg, uh, the fact that, uh, that they didn't, wouldn't play on Yom Kippur. Uh, I found uh, like, it, you know, it sort of chucks me up a little bit. The fact that, you know, being on the center stage in sports and to take that stand uh, is unbelievable. I could just imagine them walking in the synagogue on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur when their team is in the world series and the kind of a, uh, applause and ovation they would have gotten at the time yeah there's there's the story it was you know Rosh Hashanah one year Yom Kippur one year he Greenberg didn't play comes back the next day and hits two home runs including the one to win the pennant 
And the Detroit Free Press the next day ran the headline, Shana Tova. Right, right. <laughs> I think there was also the one that where Koufax didn't play and Drysdale pitched. Yeah. And uh, he lost badly. And uh, he, I guess he was questioned by the press afterwards. And uh, he says something like, I, 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 I can only guess you probably wish I was Jewish. <laughs> he, he, and I think Kovac came back and, and won and won the last game of that series. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. I hope that yeah. I hope that's enough content for you guys. Yeah, so. that's great. That's great. Thanks so much, Sheldon. Thanks so much for joining us. We really okay. appreciate it. Thanks again to Sheldon for joining us. Uh, our first guest to be at my bris and. Hopefully not our last, or maybe our last. I don't know who else would. You know, I don't have a guest list. I I, I wasn't really. Uh, I, I had bigger fish to fry that day. Great interview. It was a really fascinating conversation and, and sort of a bit of a departure, yeah. a little more, um, I would say businessy than conversations yeah. we've had in the past, but still very interesting. But interesting to hear those stories and uh, you know his career ranging from uh, intercounty baseball days all the way to the uh, NHL Board of Governors. So, um, you know, really thanks again for joining us and, and hopefully. People found that interesting, and and again, send this along to your to your uh, young friends and family who who may need some career advice. Uh, looking forward, as always, you can find our podcasts, articles, and everything else at the Canadian Jewish News' website, the CJN.ca. For the first time in its 63-year history, the Canadian Jewish News can accept charitable donations. So, uh, you know, if you're thinking about a, a end of year gift, consider the Canadian Jewish News. Um, and you can find us on Twitter at Mentormers, uh, as long as uh, Hair Musk will have us there. Like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.